0: If the philosopher Nietzsche had been a narwhal, then we probably wouldn't have had to inflict the horrors of the Holocaust on each other. So says Justin Gregg in his new book, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, which argues that non-human animals have far superior ways of dealing with difference than do we. This is Patrice Jones, and you've tuned into In Context. Justin Gregg is our guest today, but before I introduce Justin the author, I want to introduce Justin the cow, who came to Vine Sanctuary as a calf, after his mother Jan jumped a beef farm fence while pregnant, gave birth to her calf in the woods and then got them both safely to sanctuary. Justin grew up to be a gentle giant who enjoys bird watching and always spends some time each day with his mother Jan. Jan is one of my most admired people and Whenever I am thinking about or writing about some human foible, let's say capitalism, I ask myself, how would I explain this to Jan and what would she think about it? Mostly, I conclude that she would think it nonsensical and dangerous. Which leads us to the topic of today, human error, with our guest, Justin Gregg, the author of the new book, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. Justin, welcome. Thank you so much for
1: being here. Well, thank you for inviting me on. This is uh, fantastic. I'm very excited uh, to get the chance to
0: talk with you about these things. In the book. You say that humans are why specialists, and this leads to as many problems as it solves. And I want to ask you about that. But before I do that, I have my own why question for you. And that's why did you write this book? Well,
1: I guess the one sentence answer I guess I'm usually giving is because I want People to rethink their relationship to animals when it comes specifically to intelligence and whether or not intelligence itself is all that great, the way we think of human intelligence. But the longer sort of answer is I I've been studying animals for a while, animal cognition. And a lot of what I'm doing is trying to get people excited about animals or more interested in animals or treating animals um, better. And to do that, I'm usually giving examples of how smart they are, right? Like, oh, did you know that? this animal does such and such a thing and that's very similar to what humans do because that gets people excited but the reality is that that drives me crazy as an animal cognition person because why do we have to compare them to humans in the first place and so for this book i'm like well let's take a different tact altogether, which is to say actually maybe human intelligence is a bad thing and so when an animal is acting like a human that's not a good thing because animals have better solutions to surviving in the world so i think There are not many people who argue that, but I took a whole book to explain why human intelligence sucks.
0: And you thought that if we understood better, our ways of understanding suck, then... What? Well, that would be
1: the problem, of course, with humans is that we many cultures, certainly in the West, place humans at the top of whatever weird pyramid, whether or not this is, you know, a Judeo-Christian pyramid or just sort of a secular society that still sees humans as having power over nature and animals. We're always at the apex. And that that is the nature of the problem. That's it, really. So I think that creates a lot of harm because we are arrogantly putting ourselves at the top of whatever pyramid we're discussing, usually intelligence, and that creates harm and suffering. So I think knocking humans off of this pedestal by showing that we are just the same as every other animal will be better for us and obviously better for the rest of the world and the animals in it.
0: Every every animal is different. Every animal is unique in in some way, has some unique constellation of Physical features and unique ways of solving problems, and humans like to, to claim all sorts of uniquenesses falsely, but uh, but of course we are a particular kind of animal and have a particular tendencies. And one of those tendencies is, as you put it, that we are hardwired. To be duped. Well, because we're social primates,
1: and we have this capacity for language and for theory of mind, and these things exist in some forms for other species, but we've taken them to a sort of complex, absurd level. To the point where I, when I'm interacting with you or other human beings, I am guessing as to what you're thinking and what you're believing, and I can use language to pry your thoughts to figure out what you are thinking and to tell you what I'm thinking. So this is exchange of of minds. That's what humans do best. That is really what we're designed to do. But while that is all happening, you have the capacity to plant false information, to try and change your beliefs, to make you believe things that aren't true, that are to my benefit. So we we are designed to some extent, language itself and theory of mind are also designed for manipulating each other. But then there's arguments in cognitive psychology that at the same time, most Most of the time when we hear information, we accept that it's true. We sort of, our default is to believe things, but we're designed to lie. So it creates a scenario where where we're constantly manipulating each other, which is generally okay on a day-to-day basis. Like if you and I are lying to each other, it's not going to destroy the world, but when a world leader is lying to everyone in their country and the whole country believes something false and then they go to war, and then we could all essentially be exterminated by by lies. So that's why I say it's, it is dangerous. It's unique, which is nice and all, but can be very dangerous. It also creates, you know, theater and television. Those are all just fake stories that aren't real. And that's beautiful, but it also could lead to nuclear annihilation, which is not beautiful.
0: Right. And now other species will sometimes especially other social species, will sometimes uh, trick each each other or or trick other animals. I remember uh, seeing out my window a situation where a squirrel was down at the bird feeder and a songbird let out an alarm cry like there was a predator nearby, which made the squirrel run away, but there was no predator and the songbird hopped down to eat what the squirrel Had been eating, so so some form of trickery happens with other animals as well. But we seem particularly adept at trickery on a really large scale. So, what's that about? Yeah, there's deception is
1: baked into all animal communication and even plant communication. If you think of like a Venus flytrap, it's telling lies about whether or not it's a yummy flower. Where as soon as communication evolved in the in the natural world biologically. Uh, false information and deception became part of it, and sometimes, yeah, there are those great examples of really complicated deception that an animal seems to be doing purposefully to try and alter the behavior of another animal to fool it but then of course but the the this, the difference for humans is that we are really interested in not just manipulating the behavior of others of others out there but manipulating their beliefs and that that is the difference because the the one a you know a bird is is making a false alarm call it will effectively drive a squirrel away but that bird doesn't need to know what the squirrel believes it just needs to know that when it does that the squirrel leaves so it's effective but what a human can do is be like well i want <laughs> i want my neighbor to 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 leave me alone so i'm going to pl- plant this false belief that i that i'm a dangerous person and i think that's the, that's what makes it more more dangerous and more problematic because we're honing in on beliefs and you can have a person live their whole life living a lie or living in a false world. And then that's more problematic than just scaring away your neighbor or a squirrel. I think that. Does
0: that make sense the way I'm phrasing it? It does, but it's making me think that, of course, all of the different capabilities, characteristics, tendencies that we or any other species have exist ecologically with each other. Like you can't just separate out one feature and then explain things by that without reference to the other features that work with it. And that brings me sort of back to your phrase, why specialists? You say that humans are why specialists. So, and I I feel like maybe people who are tuning in might like to know more about that. And I'm thinking that that in part explains how our deceptions then can snowball and become so dangerous.
1: Yeah. Why specialism kind of like lying is one of those things I picked out that humans do kind of to an insane level, whereas other animals, not as much. So in this sense, uh, the the question of asking why is a particularly common human thing to do. We want to know why something causes something else to happen. So this form of causal inference. And that, of course, would be the basis for science and engineering and everything. And it also, like you say, it it bleeds into these abilities to deceive because you're creating all these connections and causality. You know, religion itself is in a form of asking why the world is the way it is. Why do I have to die? Those are all just why connections. And animals, there are examples of animals engaged in causal inference. Certainly other primates can do it to some extent. But for the most part, animals don't use it or need it because basic learned associations is how all animals get by including humans and as i argue in the book like even though we had the ability for causal inference when we first popped into existence you know 150 200,000 years ago we didn't we didn't use it very much like we weren't building cities immediately or inventing agriculture we were sort of living side by side with chimpanzees at the time living pretty much parallel lives mostly based off of you know basic learned associations so so yeah, we had that ability, but really only in recent years has it taken off and given us these crazy societies and cultures which I think are like everything a double-edged sword. The world we live in is very nice, like I'm happy with vaccines. They're they're very helpful and they're a product of scientific thinking, but then we are so destructive. Like all of our all of our military and you know capitalism itself and all of these things they're so destructive, and they're also based off of that same capacity for asking why.
0: We know that other humans are narrative creatures. They they answer the question why by means of cause and effect stories. And so when when humans engage in deception, they're 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 trying to alter the story that's in somebody else's head in a really abiding way.
1: Even if it's literally just a story, like the. You know, of the Lord of the Rings, you know, those are all made up information. But you're trying to explain the world in terms of how it works, what causes what to happen. But then everyday stories as well, like why did I go to the refrigerator just now? Oh, because I was thirsty. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's not. Maybe it was habit.
0: And and I think I think we can I think we can bookmark this as a tendency for humans. Without, like, if I had any quibble with your book, it would be sometimes stating that animals don't engage in this or that or or don't engage in, in causal reasoning or are only about conditioning when I'm not sure the evidence exists either way sufficiently for us to even guess. But I don't think we need to know what's going on in their heads to look at what's going on in our heads and see the ways that it's leading us astray. That's true. And that, that is a, when you're
1: studying animal cognition, that's always the million dollar question is just because we, we we don't see that in the lab. This evidence of them reasoning causally doesn't mean they aren't doing it. Or maybe they are also maybe there are the cows are sitting and thinking of these beautiful, elaborate stories in their minds. It's entirely possible. There's no reason not to think there's no scientific reason why you would say no, because if there's anything we know, every time we say an animal can't do that, eventually someone will find that they can. That's just a truism. But I but I mean, f- from the other perspective, like the only way you can explain a lot of like human behavior, like sending rockets into space, it definitely we know causal inference is involved. So if animals aren't doing that, we can say at the very least, like if they have causal inference, they're just not doing very much with it. Kind of like humans used to be 200,000 years ago.
0: One thing that I was thinking recently is if you are going to claim superiority over somebody else or claim that someone else can't do something, shouldn't the burden of proof be on you rather than the burden of proof being on the alleged inferior one to prove that they're um, equal?
1: If you're just simply studying behavior and you want to know why things don't don't happen, if you don't have evidence of something in the behavior itself, you don't always need the more complicated thing there to explain it. And it's okay to have a mind that doesn't have causal inference because learned associations are just as effective at producing that behavior. But when it comes into issues of ethics and when it comes to harm, especially when it comes to consciousness and sentience and physical pain and happiness and those sorts of things, there is... you. There's a lot of harm in removing those capacities from animals just because there's a lack of outward evidence. So when in doubt, err on the side of caution when it comes to, I think, causing harm. I think that's a good baseline. I think it, like, you're not going to cause any harm by saying like, well, that chimpanzee is probably just using learned associations versus causal inference. That's fine. But you cause a lot of harm by saying, well, that's just a chimpanzee. It doesn't have the same capacity for pain as a human. I mean, that's absurd. So that's, I think, the, the difference. But I know what you're saying, the tension about being so sure that something isn't present. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of modern cognitive scientists are very lenient toward or more careful than they used to be in allowing the the possibility or the probability of something being there, even though we don't know for sure.
0: Mm. I, I want to come back to morality in a minute, because that's obviously super important. And it's also a big piece of your book. But I want to stay with consciousness for a moment and ask you what you think about the degree to which human the human way of being conscious might itself lead us into error consciousness as you say in the book is one of these topics about which we've always been arguing and and about which there have been for forever and will continue to be arguments about consciousness of other animals. The way I'm defining it for the book, which
1: is useful for this discussion, is that it's any subjective experience whatsoever, which is a pretty broad, the most broad definition. And so that would apply to pretty much any animal at all, including insects. Subjective um, experience of which you're aware? Just any subjective experience. Yes. Yeah, so awareness of that is subjective experience. So you have a that magical, conscious awareness of being in pain, you can, the qualia, the experience of the pain itself, that would be pretty widespread in the animal kingdom, if not universal, I would argue, and other people argue who are way smarter than me. And but the differences and the thing that gets us in trouble, as you point out, is that as I say in the book, humans aren't more conscious than other animals. We're just conscious of more things. So more things means more stuff that we're thinking about. So we're conscious of a lot of our thinking, and including higher levels of complexity of self-awareness, the ability to think about yourself as a single entity in the past, imagine yourself in the future, to have thoughts about your thoughts, metacognitive thoughts, thoughts about language. There's a lot. There's a lot more thinking going on in our brains that we're aware of, other animals probably have similar thoughts buried underneath, but we just happen to be able to put them on paper, literally, and talk about them. And so to your point, that's it's kind of weird and it could get us in a lot of trouble because we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves, that self-awareness that we have, and then intellectualizing a lot of our own behavior so we can justify our really terrible behavior. That's what I talk about in that morality section because we're so aware of our thinking and our reasoning. And so we end up being a lot meaner a lot of the times because we've got a good conscious explanation for it.
0: Yeah, but what I'm aware of is how much of of, of our own cognition is not within our consciousness. And we make the mistake of presuming that what is within our consciousness is our whole selves when it's actually a fraction of ourselves.
1: That's true, because you have a lot of these cognitive biases, right? Especially when it comes to things like racism and sexism, there's things that are deep in there, uh, and they're generating a lot of our thoughts and beliefs. But when you ask us to consciously ruminate on that stuff, we will say like, no, no, that's not why I did that, or that's not happening, or I don't think that way. And it is indeed under the surface driving our behavior. You're right. And so we come up with a sort of false narrative of who we are and why we do stuff (laughs) when there's so much happening under the surface you're right and that is i mean other species are probably not doing that same sort of stuff and that is kind of gross and weird only if we're overconfident about it i mean the whole point is like at least we can realize that we have these biases and these other things driving our behavior and actively try to stop them from gumming up the works from making us bad people so at least there's that but you're right and that a lot of the time that's we're just driven by all these things, and we think we have control of our actions, but we're we don't a lot of the time.
0: Right. We think of we think of our conscious selves first of all as our very selves, and certainly as the boss of ourselves mm-hmm. in in ways that probably aren't true. Yeah. We come because we have a, you know we have these narratives about why we
1: have done things in the past. There's so many examples in psychology of this where we come up with these. <laughs> post-talk explanations as to why we did something, if it fits our autobiographical narrative that makes us a good person. That's how we can survive sort of psychologically to create this shell around our, to to shield ourselves from our own behavior sometimes, I think. Yeah. And so yeah, trying to break through that and realize, like you're saying, that you are not the person you think you are. You're just a, a construct of yourself.
0: You are yourself a, con- a social, yourself, not your yeah. organ. Your organism is a material fact in the yeah. world, yeah. but yourself is a social construction that's that's that you have co-authored. Yes, um, exactly. Best. Absolutely.
1: And so that's that's why things like therapy are so helpful because you have another person to help you. Rewrite the story, <laughs> especially when it's a bad story.
0: <laughs> now I'm going to shift gears, but it's only a slight shift because this keeps coming up the the really terrible behaviors and the which are sometimes excused by these auto autobiographical stories we tell about ourselves or excused by these moral systems that we've created. And now I, I want to talk especially about the. The, the chapter in your book called the Gay Albatross Around Our Necks because – as you may know, and as as those who are tuning in probably know, Vine is an LGBTQ-led farmed animal sanctuary, and so we're particularly interested in the topics you talk about in that chapter, which include the prevalence of, of homosexuality among non-human animals, as well as the biasing, again, homosexuality among humans that have led to marginalization. I'm quoting you now, marginalization, criminalization, execution, and even genocide. And you say that this is a case of, quote, animals having a far superior, that is, less violent and destructive, normative system for dealing with differences than almost all human cultures.
1: Yeah, It. I I had a few there's so many examples you can pick about how humans can sort of rationalize themselves morally into a corner to justify terrible acts but but homophobia is at the top of the list cuz it's the most absurd really as i point out in the book like it's like same sex behavior in animals is so common there you know there's so much written about it anyone who studies animal behavior would just be like yeah that's we all know that that's totally normal and so what but what i'm pointing out about it is that there are no normative systems. So I talk a lot about normativity in the book. So the sort of the little rules that guide animals' behavior to do one thing and not do the other thing. That's that's how all social animals behave. You won't find an animal species out there that is punishing other members of the same species for engaging in same-sex behavior of any kind. It simply doesn't exist. So it's never it's never a problem for any social system for non-human animals. And then you look at humans and... It, it, there are so many examples of different cultures and societies and religions that have a problem with same sex behavior to the point where they're murdering people for engaging in same sex behavior and that's because we can we have a capacity using those brains of ours using our consciousness to put on paper reasons and justifications for why you should do one thing and not another and then we we criminalize homosexuality for some reason in some cultures, because of some weird moral justification. And my point is that those moral systems are flawed, and that they, they're very not how the rest of the world works. It's a product of our intellect, which creates pain and suffering. And how could that be anything except bad? That's sort of the argument I, I pose in the book. So it's, it's the best example I could think of, of humans being absolutely bonkers, when it comes to generating pain and suffering for no reason whatsoever. No good reason.
0: Which of course then leads us to the question of what, if anything, can we do about ourselves? Y-
1: yes, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> but um, but I think, at least for in, in the book, is to accept that maybe our intellectualization is a problem and creates a lot of suffering. Because uh, we like to think of of our smarts as good. But I'm saying like, well, no, look at all the examples of the bad things we're causing. And so if you, if we can be more humble about our own place in the world, especially compared to other species, I'm hoping that will mean we make better decisions. I mean, there are other cultures that are better about their relationship to animals than, than we are here in North America. So there are examples that we can use to lead a different life uh, when it comes to our place in the world. So, but, you know, we're we're in the culture that we're in. And so I wrote a book that gives all these scientific examples uh, and maybe a few sort of ethical arguments as to why this should be the case. So hopefully that appeals to people. But in terms of globally, what can we do to shift the needle? I, it depends on, how much caffeine I've had or how many glasses of wine. I'm either very pessimistic or very optimistic. So I don't know where I am today. It's only lunchtime.
0: You know, right now. Well, you know, I was about to say right now. And and talk about a a global summit concerning biodiversity, but there's always a global summit concerning some animal um, or or some human problem, whether it's climate change or hunger or genocide or some ongoing war. But I was thinking specifically about climate change and biodiversity and the the undeniable fact that our current cognitive tool kit has failed us. Pretty decisively, I feel that collectively we've not yet come to grips. We're like we we still keep meeting and trying to solve the problem with the same cognitive tool set and being surprised and angered that 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 hasn't made a difference. Yet, And so I guess I was thinking that perhaps one of the goods that could come out of your book would be one more push in the direction of of some sort of epiphany concerning the collective failure of the ways of thinking that have gotten us to where we are now, for better or worse. In order to come up with strategies that are are maybe a bit more realistic in terms of taking account of how human beings actually are and and how we actually do think and not only what our strengths are, but what our weaknesses are. Because you say, what if we quiet down that voice shouting about the exceptionalism of our species and instead listen to the stories that other species are telling us? And I'm thinking that those stories are not only stories of our own stupidity, but stories about how they have solved problems.
1: Yeah, especially when it comes to morality. I mean, there's the naturalistic fallacy you don't want to – Fall into, which is everything in nature is good because there's a lot of terrible things happening in the in the animal kingdom, obviously. But for the most part, if you're just looking at a single species bopping about in the world, they are nowhere near as destructive as humans. And you can look at the way that their their social systems work and realize that there are there are some lessons you can learn on how to live, but mostly the lesson is that the human way of thinking, the way we've set our structures up in our societies, is Objectively destructive to everything and everybody, and so question whether or not you can think your way out of things, and look to examples of human cultures that are not destructive, and perhaps try and emulate those. I mean, I I live here in 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 Nova Scotia, and we talk a lot about the you know the future of the environmental movement here and and governments, and how for decades there has been absolute marginalization and sidelining of indigenous peoples and their voices, even though we're living under treaties where they should be involved in these discussions. And the way forward usually involves bringing in those voices, especially from cultures that were already here that lived better lives with the world around them, have them have a say at the table and actually guide our behavior. People ask me about the future and whether or not I'm pessimistic and I'm generally pessimistic. I have to be honest, but, um, But I I accidentally thought the other day that maybe there is some optimism. And that that was when a a hurricane came through where I live and destroyed everything. And there's trees down and people without powers for weeks. And we all came together and we helped each other out. And I realized, well, when humans are pressed into a corner and they need to solve a problem, they can do it quickly and they can do it together. And so when that problem, the current problem, climate change, becomes something that's absolutely unavoidable and it's going to be bad, right? then I think we might just rally and do the right thing. But like you're saying, we're sitting in all these meetings and we're having all these conversations and nothing's really changing. And I don't think we can just talk and solve our way out of it. We need to be nudged. And I'm afraid that the nudge is going to be something terrible. I don't know if you're optimistic. I don't know how you feel about the, how we're going to rearrange our societies.
0: I feel like the nudges have, have been happening. I, I, I feel like it's pretty clear, at least to me, that our collective capacity for problem solving has, has reached its limit within the current ways we have of organizing our, our, our communities and, and ourselves. If our species has a claim to exceptionalism, it's that we're exceptionally purely plastic. And so that level of behavioral plasticity always leaves open the possibility of organizing ourselves differently. And I do think that your book, which clarifies few, certainly not all, no one book could do it, but, <laughs> but clarifies a few of the key errors to which humans are prone. It helps to push us towards a place we need to be, which is which is when we say to err is human, and we really know that's true.
1: Mm-hmm. We're and, very good at erring.
0: <laughs> yeah. That would, and 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 shift to a to a position of presuming that that we're more likely to be erroneous than not, and understanding that uh, rather than fears over the the larger than human world, we're actually entirely dependent on the human. Not, larger than human world. It's a profound shift that I think we're going to have to make and I think it is possible it could be made and I know that that we are capable of thinking differently and acting differently. Question is what will what will, what will lead us Collectively to, to call upon different of our capabilities. And I do think that your book is one of those nudges that, that could help to lead us there. So let me say the title again. <laughs> I've been talking with Justin Gray, who is the author of If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. We're going to be reading that book for the Vine Book Club coming up. So you may want to visit the Vine Sanctuary website to join the club. You can also visit the Vine Sanctuary website for transcripts, back episodes, show notes of this and other episodes of In Context. I want to thank Justin for this delightful conversation and for making time to see us today. I want to thank our producer, Sarah Jane Blum, and I want to thank you for whatever you're going to do to challenge human supremacy next week. I'm Patrice Jones. This has been In Context, coming to you from Vine Sanctuary. See you next time.